Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series, Israel Insider with Mr. Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all things Israeli. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on the current affairs for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar, so I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, um, and good evening from Israel. Uh, today's the day. We've been talking about it now for weeks, if not months. Uh, today was the day that uh, the coalition deal signed between uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud and Benny Gantz's Blue and White allowed for the beginning of a process to apply uh, Israeli sovereignty to uh, portions up to, I think, about 30%, 29% of Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. Uh, everyone was looking at this day. Uh, for a while, it was considered to be a very crucial day, a day where something at least, however symbolic, could happen. Um, but basically today has come and gone without anything. Uh, at most, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu put out um, a communique uh, during the day, basically saying that discussions are still taking place um, and they will be ongoing over the next few days. Ofria Kunis, uh, who is a minister and a could minister in the government, uh, basically said that uh, he believes that something will happen this month. Uh, they're still in consultations with the Americans, and that seems to be where uh, the momentum has stopped for the moment, at least. Uh, it seems, you know, Avi Berkowitz, who is the US envoy uh, to, uh, on the peace plan, he uh, took over from Jason Greenblatt. He was uh, in Israel today. He's gone back to debrief uh, Jared Kushner, uh, advisor to the president and obviously son-in-law, about where things stand. And then apparently that will then be taken up to the president himself. And it's suggested by uh, some people in the know that a decision will be made by the president or at least some uh, senior people around him exactly what's going to happen. Now, over the last few days, what's suddenly put a bit of a spanner in the works is there's been this uh, seeming and reported demand that uh, Israel provide a quid pro quo uh, for America allowing or giving the green light uh, to Israel to apply its sovereignty over parts of Judea and Samaria. Um, there's been all sorts of talk of however much percent Israel applies its sovereignty to, Israel should then allow the Palestinians uh, to move certain territory from area C to area B. Those who are not familiar with what these areas are, uh, in the 1993 Oslo uh, peace plan, uh, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria were split up into three areas. Area A, which was full Palestinian control, which is where 98% of Palestinians live. Area B, which was under Palestinian civilian control, but uh, Israel's security control. And Area C, which was around 60% um, of the territory, which was under full Israel control. And obviously that's where all the settlements, the Israeli communities uh, reside. Uh, at this point in time, or at least in, in recent months or even years, there's been a great push uh, by the Palestinians to try and uh, push certain areas from area C to area B so they can get some sort of control and build in those areas. 
it's been quite a controversial issue, as you can imagine. Uh, so the raising of that uh, by the Americans um, is certainly going to be something which will cause a certain amount of outcry amongst Likud's right wing, uh, amongst the more right wing settler leadership, who are already very skeptical on this whole uh, application of sovereignty move because they don't feel it goes far enough and it could lead to what they, uh, that particular uh, part of the political spectrum, uh, believe is a worrying uh, possibility of a Palestinian state that for them is, uh, shouldn't be on the cards. That's their particular belief. Um, so some sort of quid pro quo, some sort of compromise and concession to the Palestinians is probably where we're at at the moment. There has to be some gesture. It can't be all uh, at this point uh, on, on Israel. Uh, that is probably where we're at at the moment. Um, there's been a lot of back and forth. Uh, you know, uh, Avi, as I said, Avi Berkowitz and, and David Freeman, the ambassador, have met with not just Netanyahu and his people, but also Benny Gantz and Foreign Minister Ashkenazi, who themselves are pretty reticent on this issue. In fact, uh, what caused uh, a bit of a uh, stir this week is when Benny, Benny Gantz was asked about annexation and his response is there are more important things to deal with, uh, the economy, fighting uh, coronavirus, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu reacted to that uh, when he met with the Iranian, the, the, the US point person on Iran who was in the region, he went to UAE, went to Saudi Arabia, a few other places, and he came to Israel. And Netanyahu basically said on the Iran issue, but with a sort of also a, a wink and a nod to the sovereignty issue, he said there are certain things that cannot wait until after coronavirus. Um, moving on to the sort of tension, you know, I've talked about the tension between the parties. A couple of people in the Knesset this week said to me, they don't believe this government is going to last a few months. Uh, we have a major, major hurdle, uh, which is the budget. That's, uh, there's a bit of a fight over the budget at the moment. As we said, uh, I think in a previous uh, webinar, uh, there's an Israeli law that says a new government has to pass a budget by a certain amount of time. I believe it's three months or something like that. And uh, if not, then we go to automatic uh, elections. According to the coalition agreement, there's, there's supposed to be a budget for every two years. This is an innovation which the Israeli government has tried over a certain amount of years. There's a lot of economists who say it gives more stability to the markets, to more stability to the Israeli government, no, uh, understanding in advance what's going to be the budgets. Now, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has called for a one-year budget. His, his claim is, and he's backed up by certain people within the financial system, by the finance minister and others, that um, we need to, to do this one by one, uh, one year by one year, because there's so many unknowns with COVID, uh, with the economic depression, which is sweeping the world. So it'd be a little bit, um, difficult to broadcast or forecast, I should say, what should be the budget for next year. So um, they're very much in favor of moving it to a one-year uh, budget. And in fact, interestingly enough, Yisrael Katz, the finance minister, met with Yale Lapid, who has become Benny Gantz's uh, arch nemesis after being his partner. And uh, Yale Lapid put out an interesting tweet where he says he fully backs the government on the one-year uh, process as opposed to two. At the moment, Benny Gantz isn't giving in. And Yisrael Katz said, if this is not sorted out by the end of August, simply we will go to new elections. Um, which, again, according to my, some of my sources in the political world, is certainly not uh, unlikely. Uh, there's a lot of tension, a lot of mistrust. Almost every day there's sniping between ministers, 
even uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's son, Yair, got involved with this, telling uh, a minister in coalition run by his own father to shut up on Twitter. Um, so you can imagine, you know, the, 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 the relationships uh, are certainly not great. Interestingly enough, uh, this week we had the first poll in quite a while which showed Netanyahu's favorability rating uh, decrease for the first time. It showed that his Likud party, while they will still be by far the largest party and the right-wing religious bloc will still have a majority, uh, Likud would move a few seats down um, from the, uh, the previous poll. Um, his favorability rating, or at least uh, his rating by the public and how he was dealing with the coronavirus, uh, went from the mid-70s and now is just over 50%. Again, that's pretty good numbers. Those are pretty good numbers, but it shows that his numbers are sinking. And it's something which I said a while ago, and I, I believe that they will continue to sink as the situation worsens. In Israel, the coronavirus uh, situation, as far as the number of infections every day, is at an all-time high. Uh, we almost reached 1,000 infections in one day, which uh, I don't think we saw even at the worst peak uh, in the first wave. Uh, Health Minister Edelstein has said that Israel is on the cusp of a second wave. <clears throat> and while the numbers of infections are up, the numbers which are most crucial uh, for Israel and any government dealing with this, you know, uh, to ensure that uh, we don't overload the health system, are still relatively uh, low. The amount of deaths is still very, very low. Uh, the amount of people on uh, ventilating machines, which is a crucial metric, uh, I believe is still 29. Uh, and Israel has about two or 3,000 uh, ventilators. And other serious cases is, again, below 50. So those numbers are certainly not rising, but the numbers of infected Israelis are. But the overwhelming vast majority, I think it's something like 99% of uh, people who've been infected <clears throat> in the last uh, couple of weeks are showing mild or no symptoms. So while it's a worrying trend, it's not necessarily impacting on, uh, on you know, the idea that we could be facing uh, another lockdown. Uh, what's going to happen, it's already started happening, is they're going to be red zones where certain neighborhoods, certain towns, uh, perhaps even cities will be on lockdown to try and uh, stem the, the, the spread. They've already limited um, uh, weddings from 250 uh, to 100 um, and uh, uh, religious meetings also uh, have gone down to about, I believe it's 50 in a closed room. Um, so there are steps. We are moving back towards some sort of more restrictive measures. Uh, the Palestinians are actually moving far more. They, they had about 280 uh, cases in the last day and that's pretty high for them. And as of Friday, they will pretty much be in complete lockdown again. Um, so their numbers are not looking so good. Um, and it's, it's something that both, both populations are, 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 seem to be on a, a second wave and uh, both leaders are trying to stem uh, this rise, but neither seem to be successful at the moment. Uh, so those are some of the things, as I said, the, Iranian, uh, the, the, the US point man uh, on Iran was in the region, interestingly enough, when asked a question uh, during, during a media outing, he uh, said that, again, all options are on the table dealing with Iran. There's a great worry about uh, Iran in the region, especially with the IA, uh, IAEA latest reports, which uh, basically disbarred 
any sort of visitors and oversight on the Iranian nuclear uh, program. Um, and there's a, a very strong amount of worry between you know, the Sunni Gulf countries, the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, and also Israel. So while a lot of the uh, world is focusing on uh, sovereignty, it's interesting that almost in every single speech or interview that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu gave this week, Iran was number one, was the top of the bill for him, as it has remained for, for quite a while, and sovereignty has been sort of a little bit hushed. Perhaps that's because there's no movement on it at this point. Uh, there probably, as, as I said, there probably will be at some point uh, this month, but there seems to need to be a little bit more clarity and a bit more coordination with the Americans. There's been major pushback by a lot of uh, other Western countries in Europe, uh, etc. We had two op-eds uh, in the last 24 hours, one by the EU High Representative for Foreign Policy, which is de facto the Foreign Minister of the EU, and one by uh, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, both of them basically saying, as friends of Israel, uh, we uh, recommend highly not to go forward with uh, annexation it uh, will harm Israel's character. The EU representative went a little bit further and said it could harm uh, EU relations. The joint list, uh, which is the uh, predominantly Arab parties, actually wrote to the high representative, the EU high representative, and actually called for sanctions against Israel, including uh, the freezing of the uh, EU-Israel uh, association agreement, which uh, is basically the agreement which governs ties and relations between the EU and Israel. So there's, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of outside pressure, a lot of internal pressure um, to try and uh, stem or stop uh, or even reverse uh, the idea that Israel should uh, or will apply uh, its sovereignty over the Green Line. And with that, um, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So you were discussing the COVID <clears throat> situation there. Well, um, what is the status of allowing tourists to come to Israel? And could you comment on LL situation? So first of all, um, as far as uh, tourists, there are no tourists, um, at least until August, um, because basically Israel has a rule currently that no non-citizens uh, can enter Israel. There are some exceptions if you're a long-term resident, if you're learning in a uh, particular if you're learning in a seminary, but only for married uh, couples and not for singles, uh, but just a very few exceptions. But basically non-Israelis are not, not allowed into Israel at this point, and I don't see that changing in the foreseeable future. And even if they were able to, they would have to then uh, undergo uh, two weeks isolation. So very few tourists are going to want to come to Israel, uh, having to stay in a room for two weeks. Uh, El Al has been flying very intermittently but basically they've grounded all planes and that's largely a, an internal dispute. Um, LR, over the last few months have basically just been doing a few flights here and there to rescue quote unquote uh, Israeli stranded in countries around the world, in Australia and Latin America, I think in, in, in other places. But at the moment, uh, LR is not flying. Uh, they still have a very large amount of uh, its work, their workers on furlough um, and they're waiting for you know, what they would see as a, as a bailout from the government because it's part owned uh, by the government. It's the national carrier of Israel. Uh, so there's ongoing negotiations there. The Israeli government did make them an offer a few weeks back and it was rejected. 
Um, so that's the current situation and uh, the original date, August 1st, for allowing at least certain countries to be allowed to come into Israel, uh, seems to now be pushed off. I mean, Israel didn't even make the EU list of countries which could, uh, which could travel into, the, into Europe. I mean, there was only a few countries which were put on the red list, the US, uh, Russia, Israel, and just a few others. Um, so the situation here as far as international travel is actually getting worse in recent weeks. And I don't think, uh, I don't think that the, the summer will bring too many tourists to Israel. Thank you. Can you update us as to the status of developing relations with the Gulf states, particularly, particularly the UAE? Well, the, the relations, the, the move towards what's, what's called normalization uh, between Israel and the uh, pragmatic Sunni Gulf nations, UAE, Saudi Arabia, others, has been moving progressively uh, over the last few years, uh, even the last few months. Um, the, the big question which a lot of people are asking is, will annexation, the application of sovereignty, affect those ties? Uh, we spoke about it in the previous webinar, how uh, UAE ambassador to Washington said that you can't have both, you can't have normalization, annex annexation. But then uh, a couple of days later, the foreign minister of the UAE basically said that we can have these uh, disputes and disagreements, but we can still move forward to stronger relations. So a bit of a mixed message there. I've always said that I don't believe that relations will necessarily be affected because the relations are based on far more what both sides will see as more important issues, i.e. Iran, which is absolutely essential, which is seen as an existential uh, challenge to both Israel and the Gulf nations, whereas the Palestinian issue is not seen anywhere near that. Uh, there's also uh, close relations or, or sort of close cooperation on even the fight against coronavirus, which certainly is seen as more important. Uh, High-tech innovation, sharing, uh, you know, research and development, these are all issues which these nations uh, you know, value far more than, than their relations with the Palestinians, which quite simply a lot of them are fed up with uh, how Mahmoud Abbas has run uh, things uh, recently, and they've been showing that uh, more and more openly. So I don't personally think um, if there is any application of sovereignty, and the jury's still out on that, and as I said, how, you know, the length and breadth of that, that relations uh, will be necessarily affected too deeply uh, between Israel and the Gulf nations. Thank you. Along those lines, you were talking about the EU, um, you know, discussing sanctions against Israel if it were to move forward. Uh, would this be in the best interest for Israel to go forward with these plans despite this? Well, there's no real sanctions on the table. Uh, most uh, senior uh, politicians in Europe, whether it's the EU itself or individual countries, I mean, we saw Germany, the German parliament is going to pass a resolution calling on Israel not to annex, et cetera, et cetera. But there are no sanctions involved in this uh, resolution. Uh, the same with uh, Boris Johnson's letter uh, in the Israeli media, he basically, uh, the UK prime minister, he, uh, also didn't talk about any sort of knock-on effect. He just said that this is not what Israel is. He tried to make the moral uh, argument without really uh, using any sort of stick. Um, the EU high representative, the, the foreign minister of the EU, did hint at some sort of uh, harming of relations. Um, but again, without putting in too many details, um, there are certainly some 
extreme left elements in Europe that have called for sanctions. There was a letter, uh, I think it was 18 uh, MPs, members of parliament from the British parliament, all of them Labour, I believe, all of them for the far left of the Labour Party, who did specifically call for sanctions uh, against Israel, should it do so. And there's been some from Holland and, and a few others. So there will certainly be individuals uh, within Europe who will be calling for sanctions, but we don't really see it uh, openly. We don't see it at the highest level. Um, they certainly will, behind closed doors, be hinting at some sort of stick, uh, you know, to sort of beat Israel, to sort of show that there are consequences to it. Um, but it's, it's not something which Israelis, the Israeli public, I think, that these uh, individuals, these senior figures who are writing articles in the Israeli media, it's not something that will affect uh, Israeli public opinion, uh, no matter how many of these articles are. Israel doesn't have the strongest affinity to Europe at the political level, at least. Um, they believe that Europe you know, is against them anyway, uh, so that they won't make, uh, pay too much attention to this, uh, even though they're not really paying too much attention, let's say, to the whole issue anyway. It's not considered one of the priorities for most Israelis. Um, but, you know, it, it, looks, it, looks, it looks good from a European uh, point of view that they are at least warning Israel. But at the moment, there are no sanctions on the table. If there are, I think they'll be largely symbolic, things that could hurt Israel, certainly um, the Horizon 2020 program that Israel is a part of, there's threats to uh, not allow Israel to continue in that program, which again, wouldn't be the biggest deal in the world, but it's certainly something which Israel enjoys and certainly Europe enjoys as well. Uh, so even something like that could be harmful, but not to the level of the EU-Israel uh, Association Agreement. Thank you. So you were discussing the uh, Palestinian quid pro quo. Do you think they would accept anything or is this just a political move? Well, the Palestinians are not interested uh, in coming to the table, although they did, I say that, they did come out with a plan of their own, which they uh, uh, sent to the quartet, who even remembers there is a quartet, you know, that was something that was created a number of years ago. And, you know, Tony Blair was the head of it a number, a number of years ago, and, you know, they haven't really done much since. Uh, the quartet, for those who don't know, is the, uh, the US, uh, Russia, the EU, and the UN, and they were supposed to be... Uh, the four partners to try and help move the peace process forward. So the Palestinians did uh, apparently send some sort of a plan, which is interesting in itself because the Palestinians have had no interest, not even on a symbolic level, to do anything on the peace process for many, many years. So the fact that they did that obviously shows they feel that they're in a certain amount of corner, but it was nothing unpredictable in there. Basically it said, uh, we called to restart negotiations on the basis of the 2008 understandings of if we remember that, that was Ehud Olmert's very generous offer of 100% of the territory with some minor land swaps, half of Jerusalem, the holy site, some refugees, I mean, basically everything the Palestinians wanted. So to start negotiations from there, they know it's non-starter. You know, they're the ones who rejected it. The Israeli offer was there, it was serious. It was on the table and the Palestinians rejected it. So, you know, anyone who's involved in negotiations knows that you can't keep on saying no and then just saying, okay, let's start again from that point. Uh, so it's a non-starter, but it's, it shows that there is some pressure on the Palestinians to be seen to be acting, uh, which is an interesting development in itself. Thank you. So on another topic, are there any insights on the explosion east of Tehran earlier this week? 
I mean, not not that much that I can give any more insight to what's uh, you know read in the paper. You know, I'm sure that there are some very senior intelligence people in Israel who will have far greater insights. So I, I'm I'm certainly not going to uh, give any my opinion on that because uh, you know I, I I just know what I've read in in, in the newspapers there. All right, thank you. We're going to try. So what is the level of the coronavirus impact on Syria and Lebanon? Can you comment on the deep economic crises in both? Well, Syria, you know, Syria is basically de facto barely a state, barely functioning as a state today. You know, its leadership is basically run from Moscow or Tehran. Um, we see, and, and yeah, to a lesser extent, uh, Ankara. Um, so the economic impact on a state which, whose economy is anyway massively impacted by the civil war um, is, you know, it, we don't know what the numbers coming out of Syria. I think as far as the official figures, they have no coronavirus, but we all know that's, you know, not true. Uh, Lebanon is a different story. Lebanon has coronavirus. Their economy is definitely uh, receding. It's, 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 they're in big trouble. And we've seen a lot of demonstrations recently. Hezbollah. Uh, interestingly, from an Israel angle, what usually happens is when Hezbollah, who make up a strong part of the government and control to a large extent of the government, whenever they need a bit of a, a release and, and a diversion and distraction, then they start saber rattling against Israel. We saw a video come out uh, recently which shows that, that they have a new uh, level of precision missiles, which they claim can reach any single point in Israel, wherever it may be. And we know that that's a threat with a certain amount of truth to it um, because Hezbollah is certainly feeling the heat. Uh, in Lebanon, there's a lot of demonstrations and Hezbollah sent in their, their uh, you know, bullies, let's say, uh, to beat up protesters. And they, they got a lot of, uh, you know, bad press uh, recently. And even the American ambassador waded into the debate there and she got a bit of a, uh, talking to, let's say, from the, uh, from the Lebanese government. And there was a, a meeting and there was a big show of it, how you know, they wanted to show her about their displeasure. So things are certainly heating up there internally. And as we've seen in the past, when things heat up internally, Hezbollah sometimes uses us as a bit of an uh, you know, escape valve. And that's also a bit of a worry. Thank you. How would annexation affect the relationship between Israel and the diaspora of Jews? Um, well, it depends who you ask. I mean, there are those who say it's a positive thing, obviously those who are in favor of it, and those, you know, there, there's been many letters or many, uh, you know, by, by organizations or individuals or small groups, but again, it, it pretty much splits as to your ideology. Obviously, if you're more right, you'll be more accepting, more welcoming, and left, you'll be more against and opposed, um, it's certainly not going to win us too many friends because the majority, let's say, of diaspora Jews are more to the left uh, than Israelis, uh, partly because of the reality that Israel finds itself, um, partly because that's just the demographic makeup. Uh, most Jews in America, for example, vote Democrat, and Democrats are far less likely, according to all polls and according to the politicians themselves, far less likely to support annexation in any way, whereas the Republican Party has been far more supportive, especially when this is part of the Trump plan, which is obviously a Republican president. Um, so the jury's still out. Again, I think, as I've said before, a lot will depend on the length and breadth. A lot will depend how it plays out, 
how Israel manages to communicate uh, its policy. Um, but we've seen, you know, we've seen great eruptions uh, between Israel and the diaspora in the past, and we've got over it. And I think that as long as we're able to communicate uh, this policy in a sensible and credible way, I don't think there'll be any lasting effects. What is the status of the East Mediterranean planned pipeline and the threat of Turkish interference? Well, the threat is always there. Uh, we've seen a lot of um, talks between Israel and Greece, uh, Israel and Cyprus in recent days. You know, they, they've come across even with uh, the problematic status with coronavirus, etc. And while tourism will certainly be on, uh, an issue, as we've seen, uh, that particular plan is you know, front and center. It's the most important thing for these nations. Turkey is livid uh, with what's going on. Uh, and they will certainly try as much as possible to interfere uh, with the process. But at the moment, it's going on without them. Um, the relationship between Israel and Turkey is pretty low, uh, but then has been pretty low for, for a number of years. And there's certainly no interest on the Turkish side to raise those relations or calm uh, things down. Because again, like I said about Hezbollah, uh, Erdogan uh, basically he has an interest in distracting and deflecting his public by blaming Israel for all sorts of things. Um, so they will try certainly and disrupt it because it's, you know, not just for on a geopolitical, but on an economic basis, it certainly harms their interests. Um, but there remains to be seen exactly how or if they will be able to do anything uh, consequential. All right, thank you so much. And this is the last question of the evening for you, afternoon for us. Uh, why are the people in the Jordan Valley, many of whom are farmers, against annexation when Israel is a major and controlling influence? Are you talking about Israelis against it? Or? I believe the question is the people in the Jordan Valley. I mean, there's Israelis and there's Palestinians. The Palestinians will be against it. Uh, the Israelis, to the best of my knowledge, uh, are mostly for it. Um, I haven't heard too much objection. Um, I, I mean, we're talking about areas, the Jordan Valley especially, which are largely uh, unpopulated or relatively uh, un unpopulated. Um, but at the end of the day, Israel's argument about the Jordan Valley, as opposed to more populated settlements, is on a more security um, uh, you know, plane. And uh, that's something which successive governments have talked about. That's something which I think even the left of center in Israel are very much in favor of. Benny Gantz, Yale appeared to have talked about uh, annexation of the Jordan Valley even before it became the official policy of the Israeli government uh, because of that uh, vital security uh, strategic interest. Um, so I, I think, I'm sure there will be some uh, Israelis who will be against it uh, who live in the Jordan Valley. Most of them are not ideological settlers. Uh, they're there because of the land, because of, as you said, their farms, the agricultural uh, mm -hmm. area. Uh, it's very, very good agricultural land. So there'll be certainly those who will be against it on an ideological basis, but uh, it won't be significant enough uh, rejection there for that to be put off, uh, that to put off uh, the Israeli government. All right, well, thank you so much. I think, personally, I'm looking forward to see what happens with the budget <laughs> and uh, whether there will be another election. Uh, we have come to the close of our webinar though. Mr. Perry, thank you again for taking time to update us. Uh, please be sure to tune in next week to see what will unfold. On Friday, we will not be having a webinar as we are off for the 4th of July.
please be on the lookout for our weekly web webinar offerings coming out over the weekend. Thank you all again for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.